Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Francisco L. Borges and the Melville Charitable Trust. Hey, I'm Jeff Cohen. Everything you hear on WNPR, from local news and talk shows to the national programs you love, is made possible because of listener support. You make it happen. You give the radio its signal, the computer its stream, the smartphone its podcast. You make it so we can reach you wherever you are. We love that you listen, but we also need your dollars. Go to WNPR.org and click on Donate in the upper right-hand corner. Thanks for helping out. This is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Sick of the partisan divide in Washington? It's the same shenanigans in Connecticut, too, as lawmakers squabble over who's at fault for not coming to agreement over their own budget proposal to counter the governor's plan. The Appropriations Committee was scheduled to vote on a spending plan this week. We had hoped that we'd have a bipartisan compromise that we've been working on for the last few weeks. That's Appropriations Committee co-chair Representative Tony Walker speaking at the Capitol Tuesday after no vote was taken. She'll join us in a little bit. Now Democrats and Republicans are pointing their fingers at each other as the cause for the gridlock. Today where we live, Keith Faniff joins us. He's state budget reporter for the Connecticut Mirror. He'll tell us more about what's going on behind the scenes at the state capitol and how it all impacts you. Now, earlier this week, we previewed one debate. Will legislators raise the sales tax? Are they serious about taxing the rich at a higher rate? Is that all off the table now? With Connecticut facing deficits of more than $3 billion over the next two years, will new revenue sources like tolls finally get the green light? Do you have confidence in your legislators to reach an agreement by the end of the session? Or maybe you want to vent as a Connecticut resident steamed at the process and the impact on your wallet or your town losing important services. You can join the conversation, 860-275-7266. You can find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. In studio with me now is Keith Faniff, again, state budget reporter for ctmirror.org. Keith, welcome to the show again. Thanks for having me back. Lots of drama, little movement. Tell us what happened with the Appropriations Committee this week. Um, what happened to the Appropriations Committee is basically, when you when you get past the drama and you look at the numbers, the same thing that happened this week to Governor Malloy, the same thing that's almost certainly going to happen today to the House and Senate Republican caucuses if they go forward with their plans to roll out a budget, which is the ground underneath them is changing daily. Unfortunately, income tax collections for the month of April, which are a crucial factor in calculating how much money the state will have to spend next year. So much of that is based on what happens in the two weeks after the filing deadline when we all pay our taxes. We're getting nothing but daily bad news. It's kind of like, um, and it sounds like I'm making excuses for everyone, but nobody right now has a plan that is close to imbalance. It's like they're playing... Uh, for you children of the 60s, Twister, but they're playing on quicksand during an earthquake. You mentioned the income tax receipts. So they're going to find this out Monday, how bad it really is? The final report is due Monday. Uh, the, the legislature and the governor get daily updates from the Department of Revenue Services and from the Nonpartisan Office of Fiscal Analysis. Um, but our income tax is even more volatile than in most other states, only about 
uh, 60% to 65% of our income tax comes from your paycheck withholding, not yours, Lucy, but all of ours. <laughs> it's, it's public radio. It's all Lucy's, <laughs> I'm telling you. Her salary is ridiculous. Don't believe them. <laughs> um, the other 35%, though, which is a big chunk, comes from quarterly filings, and most of that is, I mean, of course, that involves your self-employed people, but the overwhelming bulk of those quarterly filings are capital gains and dividends. And during good economic times, those numbers can boom. And during bad economic times, the bottom drops out. And unfortunately, what we're seeing now is um, the bottom is picking up speed downward. Now, we've heard in the past that capital gains was a reason why the state has been in this decline since the recession. But when we hear also that more Connecticut residents are leaving the state than moving, how does that impact the bottom line? Um, it's one of, one of my favorite oxymorons. Um, you know, some people like jumbo shrimp or airline cuisine, or if you're like me, come from print journalism, managing editor. But I, I kind of think anecdotal evidence is right up there. Everybody has stories about people leaving the state, and I'm not, I'm not dismissing that and saying there are no people leaving the state. But if you look at the numbers, the people fleeing Connecticut in numbers are young college graduates. I'm not saying people don't know someone who makes a lot of money who moved out of Connecticut, but if you look at what's really pushing the numbers, that's where the biggest flight is. It is people who are getting out of UConn or the CSU system with a bachelor's degree and fifty, sixty thousand dollars $60,000 in debt. And maybe they don't want to live with mom and dad when they graduate. So they say, okay, I got to pay off this debt. I can get the better paying job in North Carolina or Texas or Arizona or whatever. And those are the folks who Connecticut is really losing. Um, I don't know that it's it's been a step. You hear a lot of quotes about, oh, the wealthy are pouring out of Connecticut. Um, I don't know that there's a ton of empirical evidence backing that up. Um, our income tax numbers, though, ever, however, are starting to go down, not just they're growing, but at a slower rate than we thought. Now we're actually looking at them compared where they were last year versus this year. They're going to go down. Let's talk specifics about uh, the spending plan that the Appropriations Committee was planning to vote on. What are some of the proposals that um, they really were not in agreement with the governor? Okay. Can I mention one other thing I forgot, though, and I'm sorry? Um, as much as we talk about the revenue side of the budget, that's only half the coin. Why we're in so much trouble, even more than well, – even if you are convinced it's the wealthy fleeing the state, that aside, the single biggest problem is still the bill is coming due for 80 years worth of retirement benefits that past governors and past legislatures promised employees but didn't save for. We're basically every year getting a massive bill for from our grandparents for services that were used in the state of Connecticut in the 30s, the 40s, on through the 80s and the 90s. That is more than any other single factor what is driving the budget deficit. Okay. So, so I'm sorry. I forgot to So pension it. liabilities, also a retirement a health benefits that right. the state pays. Right. Um, so the governor has been in negotiations with the unions. Mm -hmm. How's that going? That is going uh, – it's going on. It still hasn't borne fruit. And I think um, the problem is twofold, which is, one, uh, the unions feel that the state is not really looking long term yet. That even if the unions were to give the governor the $700 million he wants, 
that's not going to stabilize where finances are going over the next 15 years. And basically, everyone's saying, I'll jump into the pool right after you. The unions are saying, we want to see some taxes on the table. Even if we give you concessions, that alone won't stabilize finances long term. There are other people who say, we can't give you taxes first. If we give you taxes first, the economy is going to get worse. And I say everybody's going to get disappointed because you could raise taxes, watch the economy slip, get concessions from workers, cut spending, and I'm still not convinced that will be enough to cover the pension bill where it goes over the next 15 years. I don't know that there's a scenario where we can make it better. The scenario might have to be what's the best strategy to mitigate an inevitable decline. And I'm sorry, I just had people turning off the radio and all over. and <laughs> Packing and their bags? Going, going to their iPods. <laughs> well, not packing their bags, just maybe listening to something better. Um, but it is that bad. Just, just one other stat I want to throw out to give people some idea. When you look at the money we're putting this year into the state employees' pension fund and the teachers' pension fund, just those two line items, mm-hmm. one is $1 billion in a $20 billion budget, the other is $1.2. So together, they're about one-tenth of the budget, okay? Eight out of every $10 we're putting into those funds has nothing to do with present-day workers. Eight out of every 10 is to pay for the sins of the past, less than of that $2 billion, probably only about $350 million of it is the cost of setting aside the money for today's teachers and state employees so that when they retire, the money's there. All the rest is the bill the grandparents sent us because when they hired workers, they didn't set aside the money and said our grandkids can find the money to pay for the benefits when our workers retire. So every teacher and every state employee in state government could march on the Capitol today with pitchforks and torches and demand you cancel their pensions for the good of the state, and I'm not predicting that's going to happen, and you still would have a very tough road to hoe over the next 15 years. This is where we live. Uh, Keith Fanoff is in studio with the state budget reporter for the Connecticut Mirror, ctmirror.org. We're talking about what's happening at the Capitol in terms of uh, gridlock between uh, the the legislative legislative committees. Also, the governor will be um, he's calling for a meeting now with uh, leaders in the legislature uh, next week. Um, as a state resident, how do you feel about uh, these negotiations or just the fact that there is gridlock at the Capitol? You can join the conversation eight six zero two seven five seven two six six. I want to take a quick call. Dave's calling from Ellington. Dave, uh, quickly on the show. Yeah, uh, Keith, I just wanted to compliment you on that legacy uh, of debt articles you you wrote a while back. Those were wonderful. Thank you. Um, I think you should do the same thing uh, on in-depth reporting for the uh, Unionized State Employees Compensation Contracts. That is if you can actually get a contract to read the public needs to know the details on how these state employees managed to pad their salaries for, for only working overtime for three years to facilitate a six-figure retirement income after working for only 20 years. I mean, what would, the, what would be the savings to the state if you just eliminated the extra five paid holidays that the private sector doesn't get? You know, it's kind of insulting to the private sector workers that we hear of state employees crying about the $5 pay increase when they have a Cadillac insurance health care plan and they, and, and they retire at that wonderful age of 41. I mean, don't, don't you think it's sad that the state is cutting back on needed services for the mentally and physically handicapped and the elderly, and, and they won't even discuss the systematic pe- pension padding of the certain union locals? Maybe we ought to start thinking about the word bankruptcy. Dave, thank you for your call. 
Sure. We keep hearing uh, from Governor Malloy, we hear from the, the GOP that there's room to cut in terms of spending. So what are we talking about when they, when they say that? What can, what, where, what can they cut? Sure. Now let's see if I can actually cover <laughs> both sides of this debate in a relatively short amount of time. Uh, let, me, let me preface this by saying what I'm saying is not an argument for or against this. I want to explain to you, though, the perspective of what you're talking about. The, the, the gentleman raised, for example, and this has been a longtime criticism of the pension programs that state employees get to use overtime in the pension calculations. Um, I don't remember if you mentioned, but I'll mention, for example, some state employees, most of them only contribute 2% of their pay toward their pensions. If you look at other states, the average is closer to 6 or 7%. So Connecticut employees have, have it good really there. Um, this is not an argument against changing those things. Maybe they should be changed just on principle so that people feel better about things. However, it's kind of like you have a three-foot-high tree stump in your backyard, and somebody says, I want you to go out there with a penknife and whittle an inch off. You Go ahead and do it. You did not make the problem worse for me. The tree stump is now two feet and 11 inches high, but I'm not ready to have a picnic in the backyard because the tree stump is still in the way. We could do all the reforms that gentleman talked about, and it just doesn't save as much as people think. And again, that's not an argument saying they're not worth doing. It's saying, hard as it is to believe, people, when they talk about those, are working at the edges. That's simply a statement on the scope of the problem. The amount of money that was not saved for the benefits that were promised is massive, okay? The administration, not the union, the administration did a study looking at the benefits promised to if somebody's hired in state government today, if somebody is hired as a teacher today, and they are comparable to a smidge below average as far as compared with other states. So the, the benefits, while there are still absolutely places you could clean up, and again, maybe you should just do it just on principle. Just don't lie to yourself and say, that is going to solve the problem over the next 15 years that's going to solve a fraction of a smidge of a drop in the bucket. It still might be worth doing just so that people feel better and they have more confidence in government, but it's not going to clean up the problem. We had to take a break soon, but you're, you're laying out for us, Keith, how dire it really is. Do you expect that there's going to be some proposal that's going to raise taxes before June 7th? Yes, just because of the math. I'm not, I, again, I'm not even weighing in on what should. People can say, well, we can't raise taxes. It'll weaken the economy. I've, I'm saying welcome to the land of you don't have a choice. Unless you think the wealthiest state and the wealthiest nation in the world is going to go to a federal judge and say, Your Honor, we face a crisis of our own creation. Um, we should have that cost taken away from us. I think the judge is going to say, come back and see me when you're less affluent than Michigan. But you're not there yet. So pay your bills. And if you decline, so be it. We're going to talk more about that after the break. This is budget guru Keith Fannin for the Connecticut Mirror. I'm Lucy Dalpathanchel. You're listening to Where We Live. Coming up, we have some legislative leaders on the phone. We'll take your calls to 860-275-7266. This is Where We Live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. The Connecticut General Assembly's Appropriation Committee was supposed to vote on a spending plan this week. 
That didn't happen. Now the Finance Committee faces a Friday deadline to pass a tax package. Is their vote now in doubt, too? And how will this gridlock impact whether the legislature and Governor Malloy are able to reach agreement on a two-year budget by June 7th? Connecticut Mirror's Keith Faniff is here in studio to answer those questions and more, 860-275-7266. And we have some legis- legislative leaders on the phone now. Joining us is Democratic co-chair of the Appropriations Committee, Tony Walker, and House Republican leader, Themis Claridis. Welcome to the show. Thank you. Good morning. Good morning. I want to start with Representative Walker, again, co-chair of the Appropriations Committee. Explain to our listeners why talks broke down, why there was no budget voted out of appropriations. (laughs) Good morning, and thank you. Thank you for the opportunity to talk. Um, What we did over the last three months, the Appropriations Committee worked on a bipartisan compromise to to address the budget that was uh, presented to us in February. Um, The Republicans and the Democrats worked together through a subcommittee process that had all the agencies present to us, and we sat together and questioned them on many items on on their budget. Then after that process, we then deliberated individually in subcommittees because we have uh, 12 subcommittees that break up with the um, with the breakdown of the budget. And in those meetings, the members talked amongst themselves about different things that they saw that needed to be looked at, investigated, um, reduced, uh, things that that affect people around the state of Connecticut. And they they go from education, cost services, um, um, police, uh, a variety of other things that that are there, all the things that are in the, the budget. At the end of that, the subcommittee chairs, which are both uh, Democrat and Republican, um, come together and they present a budget to the chairs of appropriations. And the chairs of appropriations are Senator um, Senator Austin um, from the House of Senate Dems, Senator Famica from the Republican Dems, and myself. We are all three chairs in the in the, the appropriations. At that point in time, then the chairs review what was presented to us, and we give um, have input on how we think this, again, is going to impact the state. And again, there were shared ideas in there, both Republican and Democrat. And we got down to the last few days of the budget. And as we started coming closer to the end, we found out that at that point in time, we would probably have no Republican voice um, votes for for the budget. So many of the, the Democratic members said, well, then this is not fair because this was a bipartisan discussion. This was a debate. There are ideas in here that both of us hate because we have philosophical differences, et cetera. But why would the Democrats come out and just vote it out and not have any Republican support in this? Um, and that was, the, that was the dilemma that, that the membership really had with the product. And at that point in time, a lot of people said, well, this is not a Democratic um, appropriations budget. This is a bipartisan budget. But if we don't have Republican representation in here saying that they're, they're supporting this also, then we don't want to vote on this budget because that's, that's a false representation to the public state of Connecticut. And that's what happened. Representative Claridis, uh, you've refuted some of what has been said uh, since Tuesday. You know, why can't both sides come into agreement and, and get a spending plan out? Well, um, certainly, that's always a possibility, and that would be the goal, to, to do something, anything, on any issue in a bipartisan way. The, the, the part that I find interesting is um, the Democrats in the legislature, particularly in the House right now, have a majority, albeit a small one. They have a majority. And so the idea that for the past month all we've heard is 
where's the Republican budget? Where's the Republican budget? I'm very flattered by that because obviously that tells me that um, they're so concerned and they need to see our budget because we've done great budgets. But when you've lost 35 seats in the House Democrats in the last four election cycles, um, you get a little scared. And I and I understand why. This is all about this is not about having a bipartisan budget. This is about wanting our fingerprints on the murder weapon. And I don't mean to be extreme when I use that phrase, but there is still, we have to remember there's still a majority in the House and there's a tie in the Senate and they did not need Republican votes to pass it. So there was never an agreement or a compromise in regards to having Republican votes and there was never an agreement or a compromise to anything that had tax increases. And I understand that an appropriations budget doesn't actually pass tax increases, but when you pass a budget that has more spending, you must necessarily get the revenue from somewhere. And it has been said and stated publicly by the Democrats and the majority that they will support likely tax increases. Representative Claritas, uh, the news today is the, the GOP is hoping to get that their budget plan uh, passed in the Appropriations Committee. Um, how can you cut, how can you get rid of these deficits? We heard Keith Fanov explaining, um, you know, the, the pension liabilities, the, the huge difficulty Connecticut has. How can you do this without having some increase in taxes? Well, let's take a, a, a short step back. What happened on Tuesday in the Appropriations Committee, because as you mentioned, this week uh, was the deadline for appropriations, and, which is today that technical deadline, and tomorrow is the deadline for finance. Um, it's the first time in 145 years there hasn't been a budget passed out by the majority party in an appropriations committee. So it was an unprecedented, uh, for many, many years, event. So when that didn't happen, we wanted to call our budget the House and Senate Republican budget. So we went to the leaders yesterday, to the Speaker of the House and the Senate President, and said, listen, we would like you to go and have an appropriations committee meeting tomorrow, meaning today. As we got noticed yesterday afternoon that there would be no meeting, which means there would be no further action on appropriations bills of any kind um, before the deadline, we asked that we open the meeting. Because you can only do it with, with two chairmen um, wanting to do it. And one has to be a House member and one has to be a Senate member. So we had Senator Formica that was interested in doing it. So we would have needed um, Representative Walker. So we went to the Speaker and we went to the Senate President and said, please open up that committee tomorrow so we can run our budget. They said they would take it under advisement, and we got noticed last night that they would not open the meeting. So the problem here is you have a minority party and you have a tie in the Senate. You have them asking us where our budget is when they had never put their budget out. It was supposed to happen on Tuesday. didn't happen. We want to call our budget. We have a no-tax increase budget, and, I, and it is very difficult, and I will say this. Whether it's a Republican budget, a Democrat budget, or a bipartisan budget, there will be cuts. There will be things that people don't like, no question about it. But we have, for the past 10 years, put together no tax increase budgets that are balanced and fully vetted, and we had all intentions of doing it again this year. And all we heard from the Speaker and the majority party is we didn't know there were no votes, we didn't know you were doing your budget, et cetera. And I've Representative become Claire, known as saying... My mother knew we were doing a budget. That's how known it was. We're short on time. I want to get back to Representative Walker, but first, Keith Faniff. Oh, I just wanted to ask you both quickly a question. I mean, we know that right now, based on where the income tax numbers are going, um, the, the governor's budget's out of balance. Uh, the appropriations budget, if it uh, had, had run, was out of balance. And uh, the Republican plan that will come out today 
um, is almost certainly going to be out of balance. And I want to emphasize, in all three cases, through nobody's fault, that's just literally you have to work on the numbers as you got them back in January. And the numbers we almost know on Monday are going to be drastically different. Couldn't the legislature this year, given the fact that it's an incredibly unusual year, couldn't everybody have just – I mean, you guys have already ruined any hopes I have of a summer vacation. Couldn't you just have said, fine, we're going to postpone this and start the process in May? Um, because it is, it is. I said at the beginning, it's kind of like trying to play you know, Twister on quicksand during an earthquake. I mean, nobody can really come up with numbers that you can count on, it seems like, for more than 24 hours. Representative Walker, do you want to address that? Yeah, I, I, first I want to I want to go back to um, Representative Claritas and and you know with and with all due respect, I think we all came into this with the idea that we were all going to be at the table and we were all going to have things that we disliked and in that process we did, and so to me bipartisan, which is what we were working on and that was the platform that everybody started. If you're serious about it about a bipartisan budget then you bring all the options and things to the table at the time when everybody is there. You don't bring your budget to the table when there's nobody there to actually go through and vet it the way we did with the one that we had worked on in appropriations. Um, and, and with Keith's uh, question, I agree that we're going to have to do that. But it would have been nice for all of us to come to the table with everything, not have an, a, an appropriations budget that was represented as bipartisan just so that we could have another budget that is labeled another eight, another um, pol uh, uh, political group's budget. It should have been the budget for the state of Connecticut if it was all really genuine in the whole process. I think that it was just a staging, and I think it was really unfortunate, and it came out that way. But I think we also need to look at, in, in going forward with this, we have to be honest about what the, 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 the errors and the problems are. In looking at the budget that we came out with, we had very we had over four hundred and forty million dollars in cuts just in the beginning, but there were things that were presented to us in the previous budget in February that could not be tolerated. So we have to come up with a viable working way of addressing. We've got to talk about teachers' retirement and we've got to figure out how are we going to do this because the way it is laid out to us right now in the previous budget, it's four hundred and seventy this four hundred and seven this year. And 420 next year, we have to regroup our, our, our fixed obligations in this budget so that we can try and live within our means. But going to the cut, what we're cutting is we're eliminating services for seniors. We're eliminating services for people that are, that are in need, like Department of Developmental Services, et cetera. We have an obligation in Department of Children and Families that is well over um, $700 million. So I think, you know, we should have started this back in, in March when we got at the table, and everybody said that. But to no fault to our own, the revenues obviously changed that conversation, and we're going to have to come back in May. But it's got to be an honest conversation that everybody doesn't run to the press and say, this is what we said, and this is what they said. It's about what we are going to do for the state of Connecticut so that we can still thrive in this dark era that we're going in. And we, we, it, it still keeps going back to us and them. I, I, I really, it bothers me to, to hear that over and over again. And, there, yeah. and, and it's obvious to uh, residents that there's a lot of infighting. I went to my own town board meeting last night. The quote out of that meeting from an official was, 
quote, no intelligent actions going on at the state legislature right now. That's the perception that people have of what's happening um, at the Capitol. So in terms of what can you what message can you give them, Representative Walker, of, of how you're going to move past this with the governor um, on Monday when you meet? Well, <clears throat> I think that we, when we when we started the appropriations conversation, we talked about the major uh, uh, hurdles that we had, which was the four hundred and seventy seven million for teachers retirement, which was the, the option of taxing hospitals, which many people did not want to do, which was also the ECS. And how do we do the funding so that we we maintain the services through education because we're making gains? And the other fourth thing is is town aid. We cannot reduce the town aid the way it was presented to us in February without expecting tax hikes on, on property tax in the in the local areas. So we've got to look at that. And then we look at the state of Connecticut and talk about how do we do this so that people want to live here and keep the culture and art still part of that conversation. And we're going to have to leave it there. I want to thank Democratic State Representative Tony Walker, co-chair of the General Assembly's Appropriations Committee. Also, House Republican Leader Representative Themis Claritas, thank you. Coming up, we're going to look across Connecticut's border to other states to see how they're weathering revenue shortfalls and similar pension liabilities. Is there anything we can learn from them? Keith Faniff will stick around. And if you enjoy the discussions we have here on Where We Live, please support them now. This is Where We Live. I'm Lucy Nalbethanchel. Since the recession, it may appear the Connecticut General Assembly and governor are continually trying to plug deficits year after year after year. This year, the state joins 30 others who have revenue shortfalls, and some share the same liability problems that Connecticut has. To tell us more, we're joined by Eileen Norcross, Director for the State and Local Policy Project at the Mercatus Center at George Mason University, also Senior Research Fellow and Lead Author of Ranking the States by Fiscal Condition. Eileen, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. Tell us a little bit about this study and where Connecticut ranks. Sure. Um, a Connecticut, well, the study uh, looks at state fiscal condition and evaluates them according to whether they have enough cash on hand and revenues to cover the short run and how they're doing on the long run in terms of their pension liabilities and debt. And uh, in last year's study, we uh, found that Connecticut was uh, last. Uh, they, are, uh, they have uh, large liabilities and not a lot of cash on hand to cover the short run. Um, we also find that uh, the, the, these states at the bottom, New Jersey, Illinois, Connecticut, tend to have the same problems. States at the top tend to be low-debt states uh, and states with uh, better uh, uh, budgets. So Connecticut is worst compared when we look at the pension liability and debt that the state carries. Uh, that's right. It's, it's large relative to the uh, income of, of, the, of residents, and they also have a high debt load. And so when you look at the other states, uh, how are they moving out of this? Um, some of the states, uh, they're all doing something a little bit different. Um, New Jersey has tried its hand at pension reform. Uh, they're, they're still grappling with uh, rising costs. Other states have made um, reforms to the system, changing formulas, um, trying to move to a new system, a hybrid system perhaps, and they've been sort of cutting away at the problem uh, for several years. Uh, the states at the bottom, Illinois in particular, has had a hard time ma making even small reforms. Now, Keith Phantoms in studio with us. He's state budget reporter for the Connecticut Mirror. Um, you've been also doing some reporting on where how Connecticut stacks up with other states. Uh, does this sound right to you that we're dead last? Um, yeah, I don't disagree with anything Eileen said, but I just think there's some very important perspective to add to that, which is I, I think there's a, a natural assumption that people make, which is, well, other states are all probably in relatively the same boat as us. And again, I'm not going to contradict anything she said. I'm just going to add something to it. Um, that is fundamentally wrong. 
Okay, if there were if 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 there were fifty states and they, they you would think of them as fifty houses around a lake that had a flooding problem, okay, forty six of them have two to three inches of water in their basement, and four of them have a foot. If you look at there was a great map that CNBC put together of the country uh, using data from Moody's Investors Service. And um, you ever see those maps that run the day after the presidential election? They show which states voted blue and which states voted red. But the size of the states are distorted to show their electoral votes. So Florida, which is big geographically, is huge because there are a lot of people there. Wyoming is big geographically, but there's two people living there. So it, it shows up really tiny on the map. Point I'm making is CNBC did a map of the country based on per capita state pension debt. Alaska, Connecticut, Illinois, and New Jersey look like one quarter of the entire country. When you looked at, at the time, the, the amount of state pension debt owed for every man, woman, and child, New Jersey, Alaska, excuse me, uh, no, uh, Connecticut, Illinois, and Alaska were all pretty close to about $15,000 for every man, woman, and child. By the time you get to New Jersey at 47, they're already about 40% better at about 9,500. The national average was 3,300. And where I'm going with this rant is our problem is three and a half times the size of the national average. So there's debt and then there's debt. And Connecticut has the latter. We mentioned Illinois. Joining the conversation now is Rick Pearson, political reporter at the Chicago Tribune. Rick, welcome to where we live. Thank you for having me. So we know it's bad in Connecticut. Tell us what's going on in Illinois in terms of how the state is trying to work from to get out from under its own pension liabilities. Well, so far, not very successfully. Uh, Illinois' uh, pension debt for public employee pensions and teachers is roughly dollars. Uh, this is a system that the Illinois Constitution set, basically says is that pensions are guaranteed by contract and cannot be diminished or impaired. Uh, there was an effort to try to change pension benefits for public employees. The, US, the Illinois Supreme Court struck it down unanimously. And so there's just basically kind of this hope and a prayer that there might be a way to do another legal method, but it's basically based on, on a footnote that was contained in, in the last Illinois Supreme Court opinion. They have restricted uh, pension benefits for new hires post uh, 2011. Uh, but of course, by attrition, it will take a long time to show any kind of savings. A lot of similarities between Connecticut and Illinois in terms of what's happening with your credit rating, how uh, social services are being cut. Tell us. Well, in Illinois, we haven't had a budget for 22 months. Uh, we basically have a, a great ideological struggle between uh, a Republican governor who has attached as budget conditions um, pro-business union weakening provisions. Republican governor, we have a large Democratic General Assembly, uh, not veto-proof in the Illinois House, but both the House and the Senate are controlled by Democrats. The Speaker of the House has been serving, he's the nation's longest-serving speaker, Michael Madigan. He's been speaker for 33 of the past 35 years, and he views that the governor's conditions towards breaching a budget uh, don't affect the budget itself that uh, he is trying to make Illinois into a less worker-friendly state. So that's where this all lies. And basically, we have a state that's being operated under court order uh, to the tune of a deficit of about $8 billion. So Connecticut doesn't sound that bad, Keith. Um, it's, uh, it's unfortunate if we're saying, thank God for the state of <laughs> Illinois, no disrespect intended to <laughs> Illinois. That's kind of like saying I would have, you know, uh, definitely 
fared okay in the in the uh, on the test as long as there was like you know one really dumb kid in the class who could you know, skew the curve. Um, and I'm not trying to I'm not trying to pick on Illinois. That's that's the problem that we're at now is that there's the lack of perspective. People don't realize that what other what, what most other states are doing is not getting in this much trouble in the first place. I have a, a caller online who has a question about pensions. David from New Haven, go ahead. Uh, hello, thank you for taking my call. So tell us about um, what you have what have you observed in Connecticut? I, th- I understand you lived elsewhere in terms of a pension question. Yes, uh, I was born and bred in Texas, and I'm a young educator, uh, primarily in the private sector. So uh, coming from a state where pensions for educators are kind of being phased out in favor of other multi-market accounts or other things, uh, it, it doesn't make sense to me why new educators, especially in Connecticut, continue to be placed on this pension program if it's so problematic an issue. Uh, it, it may be just that I'm new to the state and there are other policies that are at play that are also influencing this, but uh, can you help me understand why there's this fear of any change that might make the future better? I mean, millennials like myself don't assume that pensions or Social Security are going to be reliable as sources of retirement income. So uh, can, can one of the, call, the uh, guests help me understand why do we keep kicking the can down the road when people like myself who are entering the workforce trying to help with this situation are willing to give up pensions and the like? Well, David, thank you for your comment. It's a great question. It's come up before. Keith Faneff, why, are, why is the state of Connecticut still giving sure. pensions and the ability to be invested to new employees. Yeah, David, by the way, you get my award. That was probably the most insightful question of the day. I wish I had a whole hour, but I'm going to try to give you this the lightning round answer to that question because that's a great study sort of question. And I'm not trying to take a side at all on, on teachers' benefits, but people are asking if we're in so much trouble with our pensions, why aren't we, for example, why isn't there a bill in the General Assembly right now at least saying... Um, all new teachers hired, you know, next year, starting next year, you know, get a reduced form of retirement benefit. And, and I'm, that's a valid question. There's three reasons for that. One is financial. We are in such bad shape with our pensions that we don't have any margin for error. All teachers contribute about 7% of their pay toward the pension. So if you have new hires and you're not giving them a pension, you sure as heck can't make them contribute to the pension fund. We actually need the money from the new teachers we hire to pay the pensions of the retired teachers off the job because we have done such a bad job saving. We are literally, forget robbing from Peter to pay Paul. I mean, mm-hmm. we're, we're robbing from their cousins and uncles to pay Paul. I mean, it's that bad. Okay, that's one reason. Second is politics. They're in a big fight to control the General Assembly right now. Traditionally, the teachers' unions have always supported the Democrats. But the Republicans, while they may not expect the love of the teachers' union, they also don't want to kick that hornet's nest and they don't need their hate. So nobody wants to rattle that cage. And then lastly, there's the question of fairness. People are saying, why should new teachers suffer? Because for generations past, the state of Connecticut promised benefits and didn't save. The single biggest reason our benefits cost so much is not that they're so lucrative. It's the fact that we put away nothing for them while assuming all along we would be investing the money and getting investment earnings. You can't make investment earnings if you don't invest. We're almost out of time. I wanted to turn back to Eileen Norcross, again, Director for the State and Local Policy Project at the Mercatus Center at George Mason University. You have the state ranking. When we look at the states that are doing well, why is that? 
Uh, the states at the top are kind of a mixed bag, a mixed story, um, although uh, we have the states with a lot of resources like Alaska and North Dakota do well on some dimensions. Uh, that has There's a caveat there. Um, when oil p- prices drop, so do their financial fortunes. And we've seen in the update to the study, Alaska's not doing that great. Um, so they've, they've, they've they have a lot of money. They've socked a lot of it away, but it hasn't helped them get through this uh, the budget crisis they're in now. Some of the other states that do well at the top are states with habits of uh, not issuing a lot of debt. They happen to have uh, more robust savings, rainy day funds, and they uh, balance their budgets. Um, so there's just, a, I think, a culture of fiscal discipline in some of those states. Uh, but I, I issue the caveat for those who are relying on, on natural resources as their primary source of revenue. Well, I want to thank again Eileen Norcross from George Mason University for joining us and Rick Pearson, political reporter at the Chicago Tribune. I want to give the last word to budget guru Keith Faniff. Uh, you painted a pretty bleak picture. Uh, what can residents, what can they expect? I mentioned earlier, are taxes on the table? You say yes. So what do you think is going to happen when Governor Malloy meets with legislative leaders next week? How do they find consensus? I hope I'm wrong, but I expect not weeks but months of a very slow acceptance process first on the part of uh, the, 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 the leaders at the Capitol and then the rank and file at the Capitol as they start to realize their choices are limited. Um, and it sometimes takes people a while to accept the fact that they're boxed in. They keep saying there must be some way to stop this from happening, and they have to exhaust all those possibilities to realize two plus two just does not add up to seven. And I think eventually when the smoke clears, you will look at some combination of spending cuts, probably including cuts to programs that hurt the most vulnerable. You will see money cut from municipal aid, and you will still see, just because of the math, tax increases. Uh, And I get no summer vacation. (laughs) Uh, One thing we didn't get a chance to discuss, um, again, Governor uh, Malloy's controversial proposal to get municipalities to pay a third of uh, the cost for teacher pensions. Um, There was some disagreement within the Appropriations Committee on that. Is that likely to happen? Not at that, not that level, because that line item is different from any other line item in the state budget. That, that, that cost next year, $1.2 billion, so the towns would own a third of it, $400 million. If the numbers are right, that cost is going to grow like 500% in the next 15 years. In 2032, the state owns six bill, owes $6 billion, so one-third goes to the towns. That's $2 billion. That's an ECS program in and of itself, $2 billion. Towns are saying... I mean, Coventry ran the numbers and said 12% of our entire budget would go to make our teacher pension payment if we own that. We don't want to own that crabgrass. It's going to eat up the whole yard. It's always a pleasure to have you in studio. Thank Likewise. you so much, Keith Faniff, again, from ctmirror.org. Today's show is produced by uh, to Lydia Brown and Jeff Tyson. Our technical producer is Kion Wolf. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. This note, Governor Malloy will be in studio on Monday. We'll take your calls then. And if you appreciate these kinds of conversations, they help you understand what's happening at the Capitol, how it'll impact you in your town, please support the show. Here are two of my colleagues to tell you how.